So one of the things that we are reminded of, and it's important, is that these Proverbs, as what we would say probably in our vernacular, quips, they're intended to both bring something that is easy to understand, very evident to know, to our minds, that we don't have to argue with it. There are other things that relate to the word enigma. There seems to be a mystery as the Lord is intending by the Spirit to bring contrast, sometimes in direct conflict with the phrase said before it. And so those are application times in which, for it being the book of wisdom, we need to say, Lord, I need wisdom. How does this apply? It doesn't read simply like a newspaper, though sometimes what it is saying to us is broadcasting what perhaps is not being broadcasted. It's very often that the front page news is the page of our Bible that we're reading. It's so contemporary, which is why Ephesians addresses it as a living word. It's not an altered word, not by God. It's a living word from God to us. It applies in every season of our life and through any situation in our life. Its intent is to have truth that is brought to us with a moral principle, knowing what is right, wrong, good, evil, to be able to choose even as the Lord gave opportunity to Adam and Eve to choose. It is interesting to reflect on that because Truth was completely their language. They wouldn't have known anything else but truth. They lived in the presence of God. With each other, they were perfectly suited. We don't know the tenure of their time walking with God perfectly to the time that in chapter 2, and in particular, morphs into 3, in which sin entered into their life by an errant choice that they made. It's not clear. The Lord veils that particular time frame. How long did they have to walk as a couple in perfection? And if they were perfect in intellect and in spirit and in body, how could they possibly have erred? And the reason that that's important is to say, that if perfect people in a perfect environment being shepherded by a perfect God could have erred, that's not saying anything against you. It's saying how much grace and goodness God has bestowed upon us as being quite imperfect, the ramifications of the consequence of sin, but how much he loves us in spite of the tragedy and the travesty of sin. So that's why the Proverbs is a great book to be able to go through and to ponder and to say, Lord, yes, I receive. Lord, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to see how that application works for me. And so here's one that I think is, it's both encouraging and it also is something that um, I think uh, requires a, a work. And it's this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. So we all have something that we hope for, right? 
We do. In our inner being, and maybe voiced by our lips, there is something that we hope for. The Bible says that we're to have a hope for heaven, so we understand that, even though to the limitation we have in this earthly tenure to project the magnificence and splendor of heaven, we believe in it. We absolutely believe that heaven would make us speechless. Even Paul was forbidden to speak of it because he wouldn't be able to articulate it. And for that type of disclosure that was only given really to one man, and that was the apostle John, Paul was not able to look into it. Even John, we would say, had a challenge in fully giving an understanding to us about heaven. That's how magnificent it is. It leaves men speechless. It turns them as artists that at times are using broad brushes. And so when we look at this, this encouragement where hope deferred makes the heart sick, it comes saying this, the deference, which means it seemingly is something that there's a postponement upon a postponement upon a postponement upon a postponement. And some would say, yeah, that's kind of what God's been doing with us. He postpones his coming. Well, the difference is, and this is important to know, the difference between God and seemingly postponing, we have a direct contradiction of that, if you would, perspective, because Peter writes, the Lord isn't slack in what he's doing. For him, the years that may be a thousand or but a day, to him, a thousand for us, but a day for him. He's not slack. What he is is he's patient. He's very patient. So this is a sensitive statement saying we are prone to get discouraged when hope is deferred. We're prone to be discouraged and to give up. But God hasn't given up on us, and he doesn't want us to give up on him, and he doesn't want us to give up on the things that are meaningful on this earthly tenure. He doesn't want us to give up on our kids. He doesn't want us to give up on our marriages. He doesn't want us necessarily to give up on our vocations or our giftings and talents. You've got them. God's given them to you. He doesn't want necessarily for some to give up on what may be in, if you would, layman's terms, a place of your own a place that he can both sanctify and he can commission. I've got a couple that have invited me to pray over their property. And that's cool. Kurt and Grace have asked me to come and to be able to pray over their property. They don't necessarily know this, but I've actually done that multiple times. Probably in my years of ministry, I can count probably at least 10 times in which somebody just humbly said, would you mind just coming over and praying and dedicating our property to the Lord? It's really quite an honor. It doesn't mean that your property, if that isn't what you did or not, is any less of what God has made it for you. But one of the things that I found is that 
That's a means by which we connect with God in a hope that has driven us, a hope that perhaps has been deferred to us. And the Lord says through Solomon is that the heart can get sick. So how do you make a sick heart beat again? Well, you go back to the beginning on, well, what's it for anyways? So one principle would say, well, it's to allow God to take care of all of the things that are essential and necessary for it to be everything that it's intended to be for me. Sometimes we can say that both husbands and wives, in their singleness but in love, had to wait a long time. I did. I mean, to me, I waited a long time, three years. I thought that was pretty long. The distance was long. But the thing that kept me from being sick as far as deferment is the promises of God that said affirmed. It seems deferred. There are doubters that allow you to know there's time that's passed. Get on with your life. Shake it off. I'm not trying to use a word that's become popular in a song. But do understand that in this, there's a patience and a maturity. And most importantly, I'm anchoring you in my word that you believe in. And as you're anchored in the word that you believe in, the value of this book becomes even of greater value. You know how you can tell how great of a value this word is to you? Just lose it one day. Misplace it. And if your heart is all of a sudden going, my notes, my promises the word of God, then you'll know that you're a person who has been tested and tried and that hope in deference by God, you've accepted as a patient act of maturing you and you know with certainty he's going to come through. The Jewish people right now, they live in a trying time. And the ones that have the greatest assurance are those Jews who have turned to the one whom we know as Jesus, who is their Messiah. And the reason that they have a greater hope is because they have the revealing of his promises to them, while the others have a veil over their eyes. They're groping for hope. They're muscling up. They're in intellectually capable for sure. But it's their brethren who know Jesus personally and have the Spirit of God in them genuinely that are able to take seemingly the deferral of hope, knowing that it's actually the patience of God. So it's not wrong to see this also in its basic presentation, that there's a time in which God, knowing this, gives you what it is that patience has matured you in. It's just a fact. What do you do to prepare for that? This is what you do. You thank the Lord every day for what you know he has done when all odds were against you. When all odds were against you. It is so important to realize that when you go back and flip to Romans chapter 1, that the reason that the degenerate people mentioned there, the perversion that basically subdued at one time healthy men and women and families, nations, is because they no longer gave thanks to God. How do you miss giving thanks to God? You just miss. 
You miss your Sundays of worship. You miss the activities that in your home speak of a commitment to him, prayer time, devotional time, praising God for the time that you're allowed to put your foot down from your bed and get ready for your day, thanking him for everything that honestly can be taken for granted, having a covering over your head. When I see some of these tent people, I'm always reminded, man, Lord, thank you that there's a roof over my head. And thank you for all of the roofs that you put over my head. When in fact, I started off in marriage in a trailer that was just about 15 feet long, maybe eight feet wide. But man, that was a home down in Mexico because I was married. And the times that as I moved from maturing to then desiring, even at deferral, the Lord just opened the door. 10 by 20 house coming at me, things to do with it. Then a home actually that did at the mission provide a larger room. What happened when that happened? We had a baby. The Lord knew that the trailer was fine for a cat or two, and the windmill house was fine for more cats and a dog, but the house was for a baby. And so that was Karis. And then we brought Spencer down with us. We just started introducing our kids to the mission because though hope was deferred, initially maturity and patience played out perfectly. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. That's it. You account for the times in which the desire of your hope came. And from that, all of your roots, everything that translates to the meaningful faithfulness of God, he hears it. He hears it. There's a time in which anyone who has seemingly lingered with no answer receives the answer. The desire that they had requested of God comes to pass as he both passes you and the tests that you're going through. It's true. One of the examinations, though, as I was citing in the beginning, is that we want to make sure that in all that we're doing, everything's lining up. And sometimes it doesn't. Micah's one of these guys that's exercising a patience beyond patience. He had an accident that he was delivered from, not recently. I mean, in the past six months, Micah, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So here's, yeah, but I'm going to. It's a great story. It's a great story. So he could have junked it. He could have just said, wrecked it, wrecked it, hit something in the road. And the bottom line is, is God delivered him. And I think that in a split second, he felt that he would be going to heaven. The Lord delivered him through that truck that hit a huge fallen tree, something like that. Probably after he hit the tree, though, he rammed into an elk. It was, it was drama upon drama, but at any rate, he walked away from it. But what he hasn't walked away from is the vehicle. He examined it and said, it's broken. It's not running like it once did. 
but I have an affection for it. There's a history that I have with that vehicle that I'm going to try. I'm going to try to make something at least work before condemnation. So I've watched him for an entire year, and I said, I know exactly how you feel because I've got two 95 Fords out there. And as long as they're going, I think that I would keep working on them just getting better. They're older. I get laughed at. But you know what? They get me to where I'm going. They get the students where they need to go. So the story simply is that in a brother's life here, he could have pushed it into a scrapyard, said I'm good with the insurance coverage on it, but he moved it to a tranny shop. He had the engine examined, and now the frame, the bodywork, is the last thing to have perfected. I think the Lord's going to do it because Micah loves that truck. And it's sentimental to him, and it performs for him. So I like this verse because it challenges us to hold on to what others would say, junker. Almost got you killed. Send it over the cliff. And yet there's something that says, but I didn't go over the cliff. And I did come out alive. And it is worthy of consideration that in a deferred hope, I can choose to get sick, and it will happen if I don't keep my eyes on the Lord. Or I'm going to be amazingly surprised in what he says that there is going to be for me a reward, the desire of my heart, satisfied by God, like a tree of life. Verse 13, he who despises the word will be destroyed. And that's why one of the things that happens in times of crises, spiritual crises, or an event that is, for instance, just a human predicament that had an outcome. You know, I was, a brother shared with me today, tonight, that his brother passed away. That's a crisis. That's a sentimental family crisis that hurts when it takes you by surprise. The brother, though, is here. In being here, he's one that shows me he does not despise the word. He's with family. A dear family member, a brother, passed away, but he's with dear family here tonight. That's a wonderful statement that's being made in a time of a day that he could say it went all wrong. The day went all wrong, but he's here all right with us who are pursuing the righteousness of the Lord in the house of God, where this simply says, hmm, it's not going to destroy me. That event, that sorrow, that loss is not going to destroy me. I'm going to cherish the word. I'm going to validate it that even in my sorrow, it's going to be an offering of praise to the Lord. It's a sacrifice of praise. At times, praise is very easy to give when everything's going great, can you give it, though, as a sacrifice when you're sorrowing? Can you do that? I know of people that have done it with excellency. And I hope that all of us have a story in which we can say, in my sorrow, in a time in which was the sacrifice of praise, 
I was in the house of God. I was on my face before the Lord. I valued his word to both come to me, but also that I would be a living example of that word in me, the promises of God, a hope that's sure, the strength that he can provide because there are people that are looking at me and I want to be an example. He who fears the commandment will be rewarded. So we have now two verses that imply reward. The desires come. When the desires come, they'll come. And secondly, the one who fears will be rewarded. I think that's pretty special. There's a reward for you. And yes, it's proper to say that there are rewards waiting for us in heaven, but he is not forbidding at all them to be granted to you because it pleases the Father to give you good gifts. Do we acknowledge the good gifts of the... You know, every time I come in here and I sit, Lord, thank you. I remember when we bought this stool and it's a little bit hard. He says, I know, Rich. When you sit on it, it'll remind you of how long those people are enduring your, your sermons. It'll motivate you to be more sensitive to them. But I remember everything that has been done in this place. Most importantly, I remember the people that have contributed to the things in this place. To turn a key to come into this place, to see men and women in the back doing things that I cannot do. I can hear what I want to do, but I can't do what they're doing. I can direct what I want them to do, but I cannot direct myself to do what it is I tell them to do. But to come into a place and inventory what God has done with our youth group, with the ministry that we have right now, some would say, not much. I say, are you kidding me? What do you want? It's totally sufficient. We came from a glass house down the block to just this wonderful tabernacle that to me, when I come into it, it's a temple. I'm grateful to the Lord for this. And so I think it's important to realize that the Lord is encouraging, both in what he says regarding hope deferred, don't get discouraged. Refer back to my word. The deferring is for a work of patience that will be rewarded. Don't give up. And at the same time, cleave, cling, hold on to what I've given to you. Don't let go. Don't let go. Because those are important, in my opinion, human expressions of tenacity. That even though what may have been a beautiful vehicle, perfect, and it had a crisis in which it got destroyed, there's a guy that's cleaving to it, clinging to it, investing in it. I love the story that Micah's life tells me. When you get those collisions, when you almost got killed, when somebody else can laugh at you because what it is you're holding on to, it's a good work because that's what the Lord has done to us. He's tenaciously held on to us. He never let go. He never let go. At any rate, that's what I think of 
the promise there for us. Verse 14 says that the law of the wise is a fountain of life. So this is, again, the, the objective deduction that wisdom, and in particular the law of the wise, that means all of those things that are non-negotiable, all of the things that are black and white, all of those things that were written in red by the blood of the Lamb, those things are a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Getting back to the first story, what was it that our first couple, our ancient couple, those who were the progenitors of the human race, that that was their privilege, what was it in perfect intelligence, perfect spirituality, perfect in love, you know, there's no couple on the face of the earth that would have been able to boast about a perfect love experience but those guys. Solomon couldn't. So how is it that they could have messed up? I suppose the lesson there is that if they did, then cut yourself some room that God has given to you in a, in a word we call grace. His riches at Christ's expense. We need to be gracious. Because if they were perfect and failed, and they had a perfect love, and they failed, cut some grace. Give yourself some room and somebody else in the room. Allow grace to prevail as the law of wisdom. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What a phrase. I used to love hearing that word that was given, in my opinion, so predictably from my missions director, Jimmy Corson. It was one of his favorite phrases. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I've never forgot it, but it's brilliantly located in the book of James. If you want to triumph and have victory, grant mercy. Somebody deserves something and you can deliver it. But if it says mercy, it means they don't get what they deserve. They deserve it, but they're not going to get the judgment because God's been good to us. And so I just have never forgotten that phrase, never forgotten its application, never forgotten its effect on me when what could have been just a really super bad spanking. It was simply removed by just a sweet word. Do better. Do good. Do my will. I know you love me. Mercy's granted to you. And so that's essentially it. Somehow they just made that choice as perfect as they were. So it's wonderful that we get choices that we get to make too that can turn that whole other consequential thing around to our advantage. Isn't really that one of the things that we desire in life is to have the advantage of God in our life and all the things that he's gifted to us? All you have to do is consider what the loss of life means. And you know what? It means a lot to us when all of a sudden it's 
lost, translated to heaven. Zachary's here, but he may not have been. But I know very well, in the 10 years I've been here, 11, there have been episodes in which I may not have been here, seated tonight. Zachary uttered a prayer, and he became a living sacrifice. I remember it well. I didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but what I know is that his prayer was answered by God. And all of the things that make body life both critical and important and supernatural kicked in. You know, one of the moms who has a big family became a super mom to Zachary's mom, Christy. Many of you did. Made big, incredible intellectual decisions that we were completely incapable of making. She had the favor of God on her to orchestrate connections, everything. That's a, that's a miracle. So what do we have time to do right now? We have time to just say, okay, he's going to run. When? When God wants him to. Now, I'm a little bit afraid of it because I think I pledged that I'd run, run a marathon with him. He's going to have to drag me. I, I pause, though, on that to say that all of us have something that we're in the waiting process for. And in the wait, there is tension. There's but the when. When is it going to happen? And my thoughts are still this. When it's God's perfect timing to deliver that which we have waited for in what was a brief act of patience, which can be interpreted as a deferral, Let's not get sick. Nobody likes to get sick. If you're sick in your heart, then do what's right. Get well with God. Just say, Lord, you got it. You've got it. And you got me. And whatever you've given me, I want it because it was from you. Moving on to verse 15, good understanding gains favor. So this is a lesson of comprehending where we're all at. And the fact that God shows you favor and confirms it by saying, good, you have good understanding. So when you don't have good understanding, there can only be one thing. You didn't seek the Lord or in your enthusiasm to do something for God, you got ahead of yourself. That's again an act of patience with God, which God gives to you. But the way of the unfaithful is hard Another phrase that captures that is the way of the backslider is hard. The way of the backslider is hard. But I will tell you, there are scriptures that evidence the fact that the backslider may pay a heavy consequence, but he is never without, she is never without arms that are open wide by the father of the living. That's the prodigal story. That's the leper story. That's the story that says we don't deserve the love of God, but he pictures himself as one who will never stop loving us, never give up on us. So you get tested by whom you can love. Who could you love? That's prodigal, problematic for you. 
that's how we all get tested. You know, my test came last Friday at a men's breakfast by whom we had at the breakfast, behavioral. I think I handled it well. But man, it's hard when you have to deal with humanity and dispositions and behavioral stuff. You just want to say, can't we all just be normal? Why do I have to deal with abnormality and just stuff that by choice has landed in my, in my zone? But it's what God does. So I'm anticipating tomorrow a great men's breakfast, a great teaching from Rob, but I'm going to be wise. I think I'm going to be standing at the door until breakfast starts. Show me your ID card. Can you spell Jesus? Can you sing Jesus loves me? Okay, pass. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. So, okay. I think we looked at that. We've talked about it. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings help. This is the contrast again. Just be a faithful ambassador, and guess what? It's going to be healthy for you. It's going to be healthy to someone else. And a faithful ambassador is simply one that represents God. Not somebody who represents the godless. It's somebody who represents God. An ambassador does the bidding of his executive. So when I was pastoring under Pastor John, who licensed me, I was serving at his bidding. If I was asked to do something through the associate pastor that represented John's heart, I was expected to take care of that, whether it was a funeral, whether it was a wedding, whether it was um, perhaps better service at the Burger Thing feeding 3,000 people. Rich, do something to get those burgers hotter to the people. Rich, we ran out of water. The sheep were dying of thirst. I kept them too long at the service. Rich, some of your employees need to work on their presentation, their friendliness. Okay, got it. And so those are things that, again, are those ambassadorial responsibilities. Can we be the best ambassador as believers, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers? We're ambassadors for the Lord. And thank you for being ambassadors for the Lord. It's, it's an honor to be with you. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards the rebuke will be honored. That's the hardest one, isn't it? Because there's something in us that says, but I, I want you to understand my side. I, I want you to know why I've made this decision or why I'm not leaning towards your decision. And so the rebukes are those things which test us with regard to pride. Is it there? We talked about it a little bit on Sunday. Can you take a correction? Can you take a rebuke? Rebuke has with it an attitude, meaning that it has a severity to it. It has, it has an edge of seriousness, which can be the very thing that provokes you to reject it is because it challenges you in your humility. It challenges you in your arrogancy. Nobody likes to get yelled at. You know the guys that do the best, though? This is why I think athletics is so cool. It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the developmental 
activities in which, at least back in the old days, a coach could just subdue any evidence of pride in your life by what he would say about you or to you in front of your teammates. We all got it. We all got the rebuke. Some would say, oh, you poor babies. I think it made us the men that I think we became. I think on the contrary, when you don't correct seriously and you don't permit yourself to be corrected authentically, you create a generation that doesn't know how to survive hardship. I still think that that World War II generation and those who raised them, they were awesome. They did what was necessary to parent, and they did what was necessary to produce, in my opinion, patriots. And I just think that um, it's one of the things we have to do. Grace doesn't necessarily mean that God will spare you from a brutality of personality. Talk to Joseph, talk to Daniel. You'll get an opportunity to do that. Talk to Jesus, talk to the disciples, read the scriptures. They all experienced Paul inclusively was brutally treated. And what he kept doing was just preaching the word. When we see conflict in individuals, he would do a face-to-face, -face, or he would do, if you would, resistance to the degree that the Lord let him. But he was maligned. I mean, he was really rebuked unfairly. So can you get a rebuke that's unfair, but it's of God? Yes. Because Jesus got rebuked, and he is God. He gets rebuked today in slander, comparatives that he's just a teacher, just a good prophet. Think of what he has to endure. You know, he hears everything. He sees everything. To have that kind of patience not to just judge all of the garbage that he hears about himself and that he hears about the church, that he hears about Israel, pretty loving God, pretty Amazing. Rebuke's an important thing to be able to take reverently, honorably. It hurts, but it's a pain, in my opinion, worth maturing in. If he who regards a rebuke will be honored, you're going to get honored if you regard a rebuke. You say, thank you very much. I appreciate your honesty. Or... I appreciate your brutality. That was hard to hear. Don't even necessarily agree with all of it, but I am agreeing this. It's, it's important that I take that to the Lord. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. So that's the contrast. This is what we do. Accomplish. A desire accomplished is, a sweet, is sweet to the soul. And so whatever it is you are endeavoring to accomplish, that desire will be sweet to you. So remember that, not bitter, but sweet. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. Cho choose your people, but choose them. Choose them wisely. I think you have. I think you have. And as a result of that, you're going to be wise. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. Another promise. Good 
shall be repaid to you. If you do good, good is that which God does for you, confirming that his eye is upon you. Always know that. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's looking down generations. Some can do it. My father did for me. It's not an indefinite inheritance, but I'll tell you the most important inheritance, and this is why you have to go back and reflect on it. It's a spiritual inheritance. That's the most important thing that a father can do. We in these times may not be able to leave anything economically to our kids. Maybe we can. Don't know. But I know this. The spiritual inheritance is the most important thing that you can leave with your kids. Because there certainly was a generation. My father's parents were not able to leave much at all. That was the Depression generation. My family's on my father's side, moved from Oklahoma. They were part of the Oklahoma Dust Bowl to Pomona, California. They became not ground tillers, but they became horticulturalists. They began to tend orange groves and stuff. But good's going to be repaid. Good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, spiritual inheritance. You do that. Seeking first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you, meaning he's not going to disappoint you in what he gives to you. Much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for the lack of justice there is waste. He who spares his rod hates his son. This is concluding this chapter. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And so that is called assertive discipline. You don't allow there to be something formed against you that is ungodly in temperament. Fathers and mothers have a very interesting dynamics with regard to that. Some fathers are very stern. Some fathers are very gentle. Some are both stern and gentle. Mothers can be both nurturing and if you would, overprotective. Mothers that allow their kids to take a fall and skin their knee and yet pick them up to bandage them are in a balance of both trusting God that that particular consequence in the fall has also an important lesson to be able to instruct in. But they've also got the nurturing and, if you would, the nursing instinct to put that child back together. They're very good at it. In fact, their skill set to do that is, in my opinion, one of the, the miracles of how a, how a functional home operates. But it's difficult as well, though, to do it on your own. And so, you know, my father's siblings, they were all practically raised by Pop because his wife died within the... Uh, 10 years of having kids, six, six kids, I think it was about 10, 11 years, and she passed away unknown at the time from diabetes. And um, so my dad, who was the eldest, and his sister, second in him, they raised those kids helping Pop while he was working in the groves and in the warehouses. And that being said is that they learned to be disciplined by the hardship of the times, and Pop was a disciplinarian. So was my grandfather on my mom's side. 
And my parents were swift as disciplinarians. I tested that several times. My father always was able to outrun me. He was always able to do everything that he knew needed to be done to me. <laughs> I stopped running. I started to learn how to apologize really quickly. I wish at that time that the word mercy would have been in my vocabulary, but it wasn't. No, I won't do it again. I won't. I know you won't, but this is to ensure that it doesn't tempt you again. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. And that's what you need to know is that it's the wicked that will be in want. What we desire, though, is a tenure on earth that gives the greatest opportunity for God to get all the glory. And so getting old, it's a good thing. It tells us that God has been merciful to us, gracious to us. He's allowed wisdom to flow from us and a generation to be able to observe us, what it's like to be seasoned in the years that God has given to us to live. Whenever the time is that God calls us home, we don't know, but we should live it as if any day could be that day. And how would we want to? How would we want to? I think that's one of the important things right now is that in wisdom, can we live as women and men, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, can we live to the maximum of joy that God has given us opportunity to through Jesus, cinching up the things that have become, if you would, frayed, untied, tie it back up, living our life in not only restoration, but truly regeneration. So you can try to restore your life, but you can't do it indefinitely. It's got to be the work of the Spirit that regenerates a heart, our heart to love someone and another person's heart to be willing to be lifted up, brought in, broken once, but put together. And so those are things that are tests. Those are important tests to pass. They're important promises to live for. Renovation, from time to time, it works, and it does do, if you would, from a vantage, something that's pleasing, but regeneration, that's miraculous. That's when a practical event in a person's life has turned that individual around, and you're an instrument in ultimately what it means to have a new perspective, a new life, them having a new life.